Hello and welcome. Now, different people did different things during the first lockdown earlier this year. Some people took up hobbies, others got fit. Everyone learned Zoom. But my guest here today did something rather special. Engineer Paul Duggan is the CEO of the Gardner Group, a major distribution business. While Rebecca Brennan is a behavioral change coach who advises companies, businesses and CEOs. But when the crisis started, they were both interested to see how companies and businesses of all shapes and sizes responded. So in June and early July, they spoke with more than 40 businesses, carrying out over 200 hours of research. That research is now published jointly by their company, Arlu Insights and KPMG, called Tenets of Adaptation, Stories of Business Change in Phase 1 of the Pandemic. It offers a fascinating snapshot of a moment in time. Paul and Rebecca, you're both very welcome. Well, Paul, I want to start with yourself. It's a massive project. It's a big project. How did it come about? Well, Ian, uh, Rebecca and I met each other when we were studying for an MSc in behavioral science a few years ago. And we kept in touch and, and worked a little bit together over the intervening years. Um, we both uh, were curious about what was happening uh, around the time the pandemic was biting. And we were both aware that uh, during the financial crisis, um, there wasn't a record of what happened. So we thought it would be a good idea to try and capture a snapshot of what was actually happening in, in a very diverse group of businesses, uh, ranging in size from 12 to 15,000 employees and countries of operation uh, from one to over 80. Well, and, and, and I've, I've been fortunate to read through many of the case studies, and I know we'll touch upon some of them later on, but it is a really fascinating snapshot. So you decide to do it, Rebecca. You say, let's go out there and let's talk to companies. Yeah. And ask them some of their most innermost secrets about how it's going. Uh, how does that process involve? What does it involve? Uh, like you said at the beginning, some people took on hobbies. Myself and Paul decided to do a research project. Um, it, I, I guess how it started were uh, we were kind of talking about how do we capture this moment? It's going to pass us by and you know, it'll be great in, in 12 months time to kind of look back, but it'll, it'll be what we remember. So we really wanted to create a snapshot, a moment in time and capture exactly what was happening. Uh, our purpose was to go out to as many companies as possible to get a broad understanding of what in the moment people were doing. And I guess what we wanted to understand is, was, was kind of adaptation a strategy or was it kind of, did it just happen? Are there some learnings that we can find out about and, and teach people really, you know, how to adapt? What are the main principles? So that was the kind of premise of, of the research. And I guess we started thinking, you know, where will this go? What will we find out? Let's just get on and do it and see what happens. And, and you know, we, like you say, we, we, we found out about 11 kind of key themes that were relatable across all the companies we interviewed. And I'll come to some of those, some highlights of those themes uh, that emerge, and, and they're well laid out in, in, in the publication that you've done. Rebecca, was it hard to convince companies to, to be part of this project? Because I understand from, from a research perspective, it's really interesting to dig deep and to talk to these people. I also understand as a journalist, sometimes it's hard to get people to tell you the truth, especially in a moment of crisis. How did you bridge that? Do you know, I actually think it was easier to talk to people at this period in time because one, nobody, everybody was available. Everyone was available and everybody was going through kind of the same, 
I guess, the same situation. So they were open to talking, they wanted to talk. And actually that's why we decided to do more of a qualitative interview approach, because what we were finding out, you can't really find out through a survey. Survey, You have to ask the questions, you have to do that on a, in a one-to-one -one situation. So I think people had the time and they wanted to talk and they wanted to find out, well, you know, is everybody else having the same experience? Is what I'm doing unique? And they were interested in talking to us to find out, well, what did, what did other companies say? Which is why we know it's an interesting research piece because everybody was kind of wanting to know what everyone else was thinking and doing. Paul, I'll just bring you in at this point. Uh, obviously, as you said, it was a wide selection of companies from publicly listed companies in Ireland to you know, fast-growing makeup cosmetic companies in, in, in the United Kingdom. But overall, as you started to distill through the information and the interviews, what were the key learnings that started to emerge? I know you've identified 11, but you might just give us a flavor. Yeah, I, I think Rebecca's touched on it earlier. What we, we suspected was that we would find consistent behaviors. And we were surprised, I think, at the extent of the consistency. Um, you know, the report is called Tenets of Adaption. And we think what we've achieved here is we've, we've deconstructed how the businesses reacted to something in real time. And we've identified 11 behaviors that we think every business leader should know about and can learn. And it, it's, it's almost like a manual. It's almost a how-to, um, yeah. how to adapt to a discontinuity. And one of them that really struck me, not just for the catchy title uh, on it, but also what it said about businesses and the nature of business as a team was this idea of the wolf pack. Wolf pack, should I say, was yeah. one of your 11. Can you just take me through that? Yeah, I, th I can tell you a little bit more about the Wolfpack idea. I, I guess what we noticed is that despite all these different businesses, on the surface were so different. They all talked about as soon as the, kind of the situation became kind of the situation, they, they, rather than having a big team, they, they went into a more entrepreneurial kind of uh, way of working. So smaller teams, uh, more frequent communication, uh, shorter meetings, this kind of, I guess this kind of spirit of we're in it together and everybody being accountable and actually people enjoying the way they were working. Decisions were made quickly. People were more collaborative. You know, people were in contact more frequently, even though they weren't in the office. All the kind of noise or politics or things that didn't matter disappeared because they were so focused on the things that really mattered. So there was a sense of enthusiasm and motivation, this kind of purpose, common purpose, that meant they were all working together. And I guess one of the things, one of the kind of conclusions is, and I guess a little bit of, of the fear for the future is how do we keep this spirit of this kind of purpose going over the long term? So it's, it's almost, Rebecca, it's almost like that idea of trying to instill a startup culture, quick decision, yeah. Yeah. You know, 
concentrate on, 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 on the crisis. And it struck me, having read through a number of the case studies, Rebecca, the number of companies who established what you said, kind of like a crisis management sub-board, a sub-management team to really drive through it. Yeah, yeah, and very pur purposeful. And, and I think it's, it's because everybody had the same conditions. You know, no matter whether you were a car company or a makeup business, you know, totally different businesses, selling totally different products, but everybody was facing the same situation. And I think that meant it was like, okay, let's focus. We need to get on. We need to be focused on action. We need to be moving forward. So let's not do the things that don't matter. Paul, Wolfpack was a pretty pithy title. Realistic bias to yes doesn't flow off the tongue quite as easily. But there's a profound ideas behind it. And that was another one of your tenants. Indeed, yeah. One of the things that really struck us was when we, I think you mentioned earlier, we spoke to about 40 businesses, or a little over 40 businesses. And we carried out 24 in-depth interviews um, with chief executive, entrepreneur, star owner of, of 24 businesses. And one of the things that struck us very, very strongly was there was a real instinct to say yes. A lot of these businesses, um, you know, would have had detailed plans and would have been, you know, used to following, uh, you know, more traditional processes. But underlying this was an instinct to try things, an, an instinct to experiment, an instinct to uh, attempt things that hadn't been done before. And I think one of the most significant examples of that was um, the way in which field staff who were used to working face to face uh, changed almost overnight. And a lot of work where the belief was it had to be done face to face, um, they suddenly decided that's not possible anymore and we have to do it remotely. Um, and, uh, you know, in a normal world, I don't think anybody would have considered that change, that adaption. But in this world, it just wasn't an option. And some businesses had an instinct, and the majority of businesses that we spoke to had an instinct to say, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And do you think that will stay from, from talking? You're talking about field staff. And, and yeah. You're talking and when I talk about field staff, you know, I'm talking about salespeople, I'm talking about technicians that service, I'm talking about collaborators that work with clinical research, you know, so it's not just salespeople. Um, I actually do think there's going to be a systematic change because it became really clear that not only have the companies discovered that it's not necessary to have this element of face-to-face -face time, the businesses, the collaborators, the individuals that they're working with have come to exactly the same conclusion. Yeah. And yeah. we're, you know, and I think this is one of the really interesting questions for the future is, you know, what is that equilibrium going to look like in the future? Um, I have no doubt based on the conversations we've had on the base, companies I've spoken to, companies Rebecca has spoken to, I've no doubt it's not going back to the way it was in the first quarter of 2020. But what exactly that equilibrium is going to be, you know, in a year's time, in two years' time, I'm not sure. But it, it certainly, we saw some evidence that one, one of the tenants was technology coming center stage. We're certainly seeing a lot of evidence of companies 
using technology to digitize or automate some of the activities and functions that previously were regarded as being only possible in a face-to-face -face way. And I think that's one of the things, having, having read through some of your research, is that acceleration of emerging trends. Now, as you said there, Paul, you talked initially to 40 companies, you did 24 in-depth interviews, case studies in, in, in the new publication that you've done. We've, there's 11 of them. I did something earlier, I asked you to identify one or two of the companies and just to talk to give people a flavor of it. Rebecca, I'll start to you, Trini London. How, how, did, how, did it, how, did, how did it work out for them? It's obviously a well-known cosmetics brand. Yeah, um, interestingly, um, kind of Paul touched upon it there around typically Trini London, uh, they've always had an online business, but that was mostly uh, to promote the products that you would buy in a department store. And if you think about makeup, uh, on, the, on the whole, you know, people need to know, they need to try it, they need to see it, they need some advice on it. It's not something that you just buy off Amazon necessarily, unless it's a brand you're familiar with. So actually what happened for Trini London was quite interesting because they moved their kind of consultations away from department stores because they weren't open to doing them online. Uh, and how they started was a free consultation and it was a Zoom consultation and people weren't showing up because it was free and people, so then they made it a paid for consultation. Well, guess what? 100% of people turned up and all of a sudden people were buying makeup and it's called the lipstick effect. And it's when in times where, you know, you're not spending money on other bigger items, it's a little feel good item that, you know, people are still doing Zoom, Zoom calls, people wanted to look good. So they'd treat themselves to kind of buying something that felt like a little bit of luxury for them. And I think Trini London adapted really well, very quickly in taking their business from a department store into kind of a Zoom one-to-one -one sales situation and advising people. So, you know, they've done really well. They've seen the best kind of sales figures they've seen since they started. Uh, they were predicting kind of to be under budget. They were significantly over the budget. Um, so they've had a really, a really good positive result over this period. So. Uh, Paul, from cosmetics to drugs, quite the quite the, the pivot here. But UDG Healthcare, they were you. You had some in depth conversations with them. Yeah, like it. It really struck me um, uh, that the ease with which UDG Healthcare, and, and, and on the surface, I say the word ease, but the ease with which that business adapted to the new reality was, was really very surprising, given that it has 15,000 or so employees and actually can't recall now how many countries they're active in. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was that they had already, I think the tenet that we refer to in, 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 the, in the publication is race fit, right? Critical thing for, for UDG Healthcare was all the pieces were in place. Um, they, they, and one of the serious foundations in UDG Healthcare was their clear definition of values. And the fact that the staff had to, were expected, if you, if you want to basically, if you want to progress in UDG Healthcare, you have to go through values-based training, you know? And that really laid a, a powerful foundation 
uh, within the business. So that, you know, when the, the call came, you know, uh, sorry, I think I said wrong, 15,000 people, they, they've about 7,000 people. But there was 7,000 people were able to immediately respond and, and, and do what was necessary. You know, another example of being race fish is a company called Tecro in, in Limerick, which is developing software for the clinical trials business, for tr clinical trials, you know. They overnight were able to move from working from a building in Patrick Street in Limerick into remote working. Um, a company called uh, Global Shares based in Clonakilty. Similarly, about 400 staff. Similarly, overnight, they were able to switch. They were only That's a really interesting that. company, sorry, Paul, because it's, it's employee-owned. Uh, indeed, yeah. And, and, and they were only able to do that because the technology, the infrastructure was there, the culture was there. Kind of an interesting aside, some of you might remember the beast from the East a couple of years ago. And the beast from the East actually disrupted uh, what they were doing in global shares. And they resolved at that point, this is never going to happen again. So there was an investment made, which they never were never sure they were going to use, or they were never sure how they were going to use it. But then when the moment came, it was there. Yeah. Rebecca, we, we've talked about that. We keep on hearing that car companies and motor sales companies have been heavily impacted. But you came across a company called MotorPoint, which is a, a really big operation in Britain. Probably not yeah. as well known in Ireland, but in Britain, it's really big. Yeah. And they really pushed the button on some innovative ideas. Yeah, what was quite interesting about MotorPoint, they were forced to close. They were closed for, I think, approximately 12 weeks. They furloughed the majority of their retail staff because they had no forecourts open. And during that, that kind of period, um, they fast-tracked a, a concept that they had kind of on the drawing board, and it was all around home delivery. So they typically would sell via the forecourt. You'd come, you'd look at a car, you'd purchase a car, you'd do all the paperwork. And what MotorPoint quickly did is kind of with the Wolfpack, so a small team of people, they focused on, right, we need to get home delivery to market ASAP. And the quicker we can get this to market, the quicker we can kind of keep selling cars. And actually what they found is people did want to buy cars because a lot of people still had to get to work but didn't want to go on public transport. So the car sales, and they sell, they don't sell brand new cars, they sell nearly new cars. And so they were, they, they brought forward a proposition that they were planning and they were going to test. And they just went from idea to launch very, very quickly. I think it was in eight weeks. So they've now got a service home delivery. It means they can sell nationwide. So their marketplace for them has opened up because before, typically, you know, it was a 30 mile drive time to a forecourt or now, you know, the whole of the UK can buy a car from MotorPoint. So their marketplace is bigger as a result of a new service, which typically would have taken them 12 months to roll out. They did it in eight weeks. It just shows what people can do. Paul, finally, where now? Why, where does this, not for the companies, but for the project? Because it is, as you say, it's an interesting snapshot in time of a particular moment or a particular crisis and how different businesses responded. Is this the start of something? Well, look, we, we, Rebecca said when earlier in this conversation that we weren't quite sure where it would lead. Um, she also mentioned the kind of relative ease we've had in making contact with chief executives, owners, entrepreneurs, and their willingness to talk to us. 
Um, it's really clear that um, everybody we spoke to recognizes that we're actually on a, on a journey. Uh, and, and this is nowhere near the end. Um, you know, this process of change or, a, or the discontinuity is going to be with us for probably a couple of years, maybe longer. And there's an acute level of interest amongst the people that we spoke to in a follow-up. What's the next phase? And, you know, we're obviously the, this report is just being launched now, but very quickly we're moving to a stage of deciding what the next steps are going to be. And I don't know if Rebecca, you want to kick in here. I think for me, there's two things that I'm interested to kind of find out more about going forward. It's this point I raised earlier around, you know, when it was very clear that you know, everybody was in the same situation. There was clear guidance from the government. There's a national lockdown. This is the situation. And then everybody felt this sense of kind of fight and purpose. And as this kind of continues, it's not going anywhere. How do businesses keep that sense of purpose alive? That's number one. And I, I, the second thing for me that I think is really interesting, and, and kind of Paul touched on it there with the kind of sales force or field sales people, or even, dare I say it, people working in businesses, it's great that we've all been able to move to more re remote ways of doing things through platforms such as Zoom, but what's the long-term effect on relationships? Because to some point you do need, you know, those little moments of a coffee, a chat, you know, those are the moments that you can't really put your finger on, you know, the importance of them until they're gone. And then the long-term effect of how we work and how we build relationships, I think is going to be an interesting, an interesting thing to see how that unfolds and what as businesses we can do to make sure that we build kind of relationships and strong kind of cultures of businesses. Well, as we said, it's, it's a fascinating project, a real snapshot in time. I look forward to reading part two and hopefully not part three. Hopefully by that part, we're starting to move on. Uh, but it's, there's 11 tenets. It's called Tenets of Adaption, and I commend it to your attention, and it's available on both your own website and the website of KPMG. So thank you very much for joining me here today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you.